The purpose of today's show is not to alarm you, but to alert you to a potential health risk that could be present right in your own home. It's a particular risk for children, one that could impact both their physical and cognitive developmental growth, even leading to future negative outcomes. We're talking about exposure to lead, often leading to lead poisoning. Dr. Heather Paradis is a pediatrician and medical director of community services at Children's Wisconsin, who tells us when it comes to children and lead poisoning. I often refer to pediatric lead poisoning as a silent epidemic. It is often unknown until we discover it at a routine checkup. And we know exposure during childhood can lead to adverse outcomes potentially for life. But it's a silent epidemic that has a significant presence in our state and in our community. In the state of Wisconsin, approximately 5% of our children who are tested are considered to have elevated lead levels. Here in the Milwaukee community, we see rates that are approximately double that. So around 10% of children are lead poisoned. And as you dive deeper into the numbers, the epidemic becomes even more concerning. There are some areas of the city that have rates as high as 15 to 20 percent. Dr. Parody adds that there are specific populations within our community at increased risk. These include children who live in poverty, those who are insured by Medicaid or who obtain services through the Women, Infants, and Children's Program. Any child living in housing that was built before lead was taken out of our paint. And use of certain foods or substances that may contain lead. What's interesting is that on a national level, we've made progress. When you look long-term at pediatric lead poisoning over the past several decades, we have made remarkable strides in our country with lowering the rate. What accounts for that? Largely legislation that removed lead from gasoline, paint that we use in our homes, and placed regulations on levels of lead considered acceptable in our air and in our water and in our soil. So in recent years, across our country, we have seen a dramatic decrease in both the average blood lead level for children in the United States, as well as the percentage of children who are considered to be lead poisoned. Then, is the incidence rate of lead poisoning in children higher in our community than in other cities throughout the U.S.? Milwaukee's rates of lead poisoning are relatively similar to other large cities around the Great Lakes, like Detroit, Cleveland, Buffalo, and Rochester, New York. Also, cities which tend to have higher rates of pediatric lead poisoning than other parts of the country. What about globally? How do we compare with the rest of the world? What has been a success has been organizations like the Environmental Protection Agency and the Centers for Disease Control to really be able to address the issue of pediatric lead poisoning. That is not the case worldwide. You may be wondering, what is a normal or acceptable blood lead level? Turns out... There is no normal level of lead. Lead doesn't get in our body naturally. And so any lead that we do have that shows up in our body or in our blood has gotten there because of some sort of contamination in our environment. Again, 
for emphasis. There is absolutely no known safe level of lead in our body. But if zero lead is acceptable, what constitutes an elevated blood lead level? The CDC defines an elevated blood lead level as anything above five micrograms per deciliter. And they actually used to term it a level of concern, and the level was higher. It was at 10. And in 2012, they both changed that nomenclature from level of concern to reference levels, and they lowered the level from 10 to 5 because there really is no safe level. But having the reference level set at 5 micrograms per deciliter sets the bar for where public health or other medical interventions might occur. She further explains how this reference level is determined. The reference level is determined by population level surveillance. There's a national data set called the NHANES. It uses survey data, collection of blood, and other measurements from individuals across the country. They use the blood data to determine what level of blood lead is two standard deviations above the norm. So it means two and a half percent will have blood levels above five. However, blood lead levels in children with lead poisoning can be much higher. The vast majority of children will be five to 10 micrograms per deciliter. There will be other from 10 to 20, and then there will be children that are above 20 for children who have lead levels, 40 to 45 or higher. Those are children who we are admitting to the hospital. By the way, it's not just kids. Adults can be exposed to lead as well. Absolutely, adults can become exposed to lead, often exposed through either occupational exposures or from hobbies. For instance, individuals who work in battery smelting facilities or who work at or frequent shooting ranges may be exposed to lead. But lead exposure is different for a young child because... When children are exposed to lead, it's at their most susceptible time in terms of growth and development. Those first years are when our bodies and brains are expanding in exponential ways. Which is why exposure to lead during early childhood can lead to chronic lifelong issues, including negative impacts on physical development. The physical effects can include things like growth failure. It affects multiple organ systems, the kidneys, the heart, the endocrine system. Cognitive development. It does have measurable effects on cognition, specifically IQ points decrease with every elevation in blood lead level. We also know that at a population level, these IQ deficits can have major effects on our school systems. And behavioral development. Lead poisoning has been shown to have behavioral effects such as hyperactivity and impulsivity, even leading to criminal types of behaviors and certain types of personality traits or disorders. Making the focus, once exposed, to try and reduce the long-term impacts of lead poisoning. For most of our pediatric lead poisoning cases, once we detect an elevated level, it's a matter of following that child over time to ensure that once they are in a lead-free environment, that level starts to naturally decrease. Are there common symptoms parents can watch for if they're concerned a child may have been exposed to lead? Yeah, 
that's why I call it a silent epidemic because oftentimes there is no sign. So it's really important for parents to be cued in to what some of those environmental conditions are and anytime they have a concern about lead, requesting testing for their child. Speaking of lead testing... Thankfully, testing has become a really routine part of checkups during the early years of life. It is recommended all children receive lead testing at age one and then again at age two years old. And for kids at higher risk... Even more frequent, so testing annually up until school entry may be additional recommendations. As a pediatrician, Dr. Parody knows the key role of primary prevention to reduce lead exposure, including educating parents. When they are newly parenting and when they are pregnant or may become pregnant, those are prime opportunities to start conversations about lead poisoning and risk for lead in the environment. As well as a pediatrician's role in secondary prevention. Recognize risk, test, and intervene. Things like nutritional counseling and assessment of growth and development so that we have all of that wonderful stimulation that happens in early childhood and kids' brains grow to their fullest potential. And in addition to pediatric primary care... We've got groups coming together to really focus around lead poisoning in our community. Medical, health professionals, public health, community organizations, and others who are passionate about this. So I really think there is collective momentum around this issue. In an effort to better fight against lead exposure and lead poisoning, a new program has been launched on a grant from the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment. Dr. David Nelson is an associate professor, Department of Family Medicine, Division of Research at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and principal investigator of the Clinical and Community Solutions to Lead-Free Children program. We are very fortunate that our group received the grant to study the issue of lead and lead exposure in our clinical partners and community. And he explains exactly what this program is all about. What we're doing is initiating a quality improvement process within pediatrics and within family medicine to best determine how we're doing getting kids tested. And when there is an elevated lead screening, we're looking at what happens in real time at all levels, from families who are impacted to the medical enterprise. What's the main goal of the program? Dr. Nelson says it's twofold. First, to better understand the processes that we might share across medical environments and to really look at what the processes are within the community so we might better connect the community to the clinic and the clinic to the community, which needs to happen at a more robust level to have more people involved. And second, we're working with a group called the Coalition on Lead Emergency, COLD. They are a community grassroots organization. It's imperative that we get to the level of working with and alongside the community to both understand the issue and what we do from the perspective of the community. It's a delicate balance, one that Dr. Nelson says requires a holistic approach to achieve. We often look at things from a social ecological perspective, multiple individuals and organizations interconnected with each other. So there is a response from the individual within the family 
from the families as they intersect with a variety of organizations, whether it be healthcare, education, even faith-based organizations. But a holistic approach must extend beyond individuals and families. We also have to think about this from the community, city, and even the state level. We need to change some policies to eradicate the issue, and that's going to take resources. And if we don't do this, who will? So the longer we sit on this, the more we're putting children at risk. While the issue of lead exposure is complex, the ultimate goal is simple. Ultimate goal, Brian, is zero lead in all people. Any lead above zero is not a level we want. However, in practicality and reality, lead exposure and lead poisoning won't go away easily or soon enough. Though there are fewer children that are poisoned, there's still children that are poisoned, most likely to be children of color, low income. And so what we need to do is continue to build that awareness, not only with parents and families, but with the clinical team, as well as the legislators to say, what more can we do to keep all of our families safe? And not just families in our local community. This is for all of the people of Wisconsin. It will be interesting to see if people become aware of this and then suddenly we're looking at lead, for example, in Eau Claire or in La Crosse or in Green Bay and what we can do to support the eradication of this issue. How is the program being funded? Our group received an Advancing a Healthy Wisconsin Endowment Population Health Grant, a three-year grant but this is a project that we're going to take forward beyond the three years to test some interventions around communication and around how we strengthen the process between clinical and the community. Because it's needed and it's the right thing to do. This continues to be a community health issue. It has a clinical component, it has a scientific component, and a community component. This is the right topic to be studied at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and I'm grateful for the support in order to better understand and do something about this. Now and in the future. This really is translational science from the genetic and cellular level of how lead impacts cells to the population and everywhere in between. And so we're grateful for the CTSI and the support that they give us, as well as what it may mean for research that will help us translate these ideas into practices that will benefit the community in the long run. Because everyone working together can make a difference. We need to work in hope. And I think when we remain steadfast and we remain committed to this, we can make progress. It's never quite fast enough, but if we don't finish it in this generation, we're certainly going to leave something positive for the next generation to capitalize on.